0: On today's show, Casey Maju, Minister for Justice and Solicitor General in the province of Alberta, joins us to talk about Bill 81. When it comes to the housing quote-unquote crisis in our country, what's the best way of going about it? We'll chat with Mike Moffat. And now that we've got this diplomatic boycott underway for the Chinese Games, is it going to help? Is it a half measure? As we told you last week, we uh, reached out to a number of UCP MLAs to talk about Bill 81 that caused such a fuss in the legislature last week. And Minister Casey Madju has time to join us just a few minutes right now. So let's get right into it. Um, Minister Madju, thank you so much for making some time for us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so
1: much, sir. A pleasure to be able to join you this
0: morning. Uh, let's get right into the most contentious parts of this bill and where people seem to be most upset. First and foremost, bulk memberships. They say this opens the door to allow people to buy you know, dozens, scores of memberships for other people. Uh, I know that's something that you say you, you don't necessarily agree with, correct? Give us some clarity.
1: Yeah, so, sure, Shay, absolutely. I don't agree with that. I think when you are talking about a piece of legislation, you have to ask yourself, uh, what really is the current provision of the EFCDA, which is the Election Finances and Contribution Disclosure Act, and specifically Section 25 of the Act right now? Without Bill 81, court membership is allowed. In fact, it, is, it was our own political party, the United Conservative, that limited the interpretation of the current law, to allow for only family members. All that we did was to uh, put in place a request by the chief electoral officer to clarify the current law. Nothing more, nothing
0: less. Okay. The electoral officer disagrees. As you know, he says that the existing legislation made it clear you could not buy uh, memberships for other people. The bill does say that the price of any membership that people buy for others would count towards their annual contribution limit. So I guess the question is tacit, you know, you're saying without saying the bill now says if you buy memberships for other people, so it sort of opens the door to bulk memberships. No,
1: no she, she, I mean, that is not, whilst I can't speak to the Chief Electoral Officer, I would remind you, sir, that the Bulletin number 6 by, that was released by Elections Alberta was released on November the 19th. Right. The question is, prior to November the 19th, what is the, co- the interpretation of Section 25? The current Section 25 have got two parts. A, it says if you buy a membership that is up to $50 that $50 does not count towards your contribution limit the the second part says that if it is more than $50 the the difference counts towards your contribution limit the, the legal question for membership has always been whether or not the amount one spends in buying party membership, whether for yourself right. or for someone else, counts towards your contribution limit. We know that in, in Alberta, there's a $4,000 adjusted for inflation maximum. The quest, The legal question has always been whether or not that amount of money you spend in buying membership is outside of the $4,000 or within the $4,000. That has always been the issue. And all that we did was, was to implement that clarification that was requested by the chief electoral officer to say, on a go-forward basis, if you buy membership for someone else, it will be counted towards your yearly maximum contribution. That's all that we did. I regret that because of the nature of our current politics, the 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 whole essence of Bill 81 uh, has been misunderstood by those who are pursuing all kinds of influence. Say, so I am focused on the actual amendment that was made to disavise the current law.
0: Okay, Le- then let me ask you this, because a number of UCPLAs two or three, I believe, stood up in the House and said, let's add a line saying you cannot... Buy a membership for somebody else without their knowledge or their consent. That amendment never even made it onto the floor. It wasn't. Why not allow that clarity? You wouldn't be in the situation you're in right now. Sure, because
1: there are certain things, in my view, that are meant for political parties. There are certain things that are meant to be in primary legislative prohibition. There are certain things that are meant to be in secondary uh, statutory provision. For example, you have regulation, you have orders in council, you have ministerial order, you have party bylaws and regulations. Our party bylaw, the United Conservative Party Bylaw, have already taken care of that right now. Mm -hmm. Under our bylaw, Section 4.1.5 stipulates that you can only buy membership for family members. That
0: is our party bylaw. That hasn't changed. I know, but when you're talking about your party's bylaws, your party's bylaws also say that if 25% of constituents' associations bring something to the floor and they're all unanimous and agree, um, then that needs to be taken up. Well, they did that. The bylaws state that there should have been an early leadership review. You tried to change the threshold, and then you ignored it when you lost the, the vote to change the threshold. So forgive me if I don't put a lot of stock in the bylaws.
1: Well, listen, Shay. I understand that. At the end of the day, my view has always been that there are things that are meant to be in a primary legislation um, in our province. Um, when we made the commitment in our party platform, the goal was always to get big money out of Alberta politics, mm-hmm. close the loophole that allow third party. That third parties that are affiliated to political parties to funnel in millions, tens of millions of dollars. Right. This bill, eighty one one kept that commitment, and and that was the promise that we made to Albertans. That was what Bill Eighty One One was all about. Um, bill Eighty One One was not about uh, changing the 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 rules around membership. Right. All that I did would be that one was implement a request by the Chief Electoral Officer to clarify the confusion around Section 25.
0: That's it. Um, okay, and when you talk about getting... And I, you know what, I think most people would agree that having huge amounts of money coming in from any third party or whatever is fine. But then to, you close that loophole, while at the same time opening another loophole by saying that party contributions are no longer to be considered as part of the overall contribution, basically doubling the $4,000 limit... Um, and introducing more big money from that side. So, uh, she, go ahead. No, say that is not true. The, what, what do when I have you wrong?
1: Buy membership, when you buy membership, if you are referring to the amount of money one spends in yeah. buy membership, it is limited to a party's maximum contribution.
0: Well, it's not just buying a membership. You're allowed to donate $4,000 at the party level before the general election level, right? And then still add the 4000 It used to be 4000 total. Now you've broken it out where you can go 4000 to the party level and another 4000 at the election level. Do I have that wrong?
1: No, That so
0: that is correct. Okay. We have general election
1: and we have a nomination election, which is the process by which political parties choose their candidate. Right. And we wanted to make it a person between those two. Uh, um, at the end of the day, there is a, a limit of... Previously, previously to Bill 1, it was $10,000 expense limit for nomination. And right now, under Bill 1, there is twelve $12,500. We have not changed that. But, but, but contribution for nomination
0: uh we made minister hello uh we lost minister maggie i know he had to leave at 9:15 i don't know if uh that's what happened or not uh minister maggie are there okay uh, i know he only had until 9:15 and uh, i tr- i kept him a little bit longer i mean a couple of seconds longer than it. i'm not sure yeah sarah's going to see if he's if he's still on and we'll let him finish his answer um I don't know how much clarity uh, we're we're getting here. What do you think? Um 78049600634039748255 talking with Casey Maju, UCP um minister who uh, you know this bill 81 has been so contentious and there's you know he's he's right in saying that the it doesn't it, there's some disagreement I guess is the easiest way to put it the government putting forward You know, we haven't changed any of the rules. The electoral officer of the province of Alberta saying, yeah, you did. Uh, And we're going to get more clarification from the chief electoral officer this week. That's what they said. They'd come forward with more uh, insight for us as to whether or not... um, it's illegal in this province and has always been illegal in this province to, uh, to buy the memberships. But, um, Minister Maggi, I'm, I'm not sure what happened. Thank you for, for hanging on for a minute here. I just wanted to let you finish your response in terms of breaking that $4,000 into two parts. Um, yeah. uh, how does that not mean more big money being introduced into Alberta politics rather than reducing it? So, uh,
1: sorry, sh- uh, sh- election is always about transparency. It's always about whether or not a particular individual or group of individuals have the ability to, to uh, impact the outcome of our election in a manner that is not fair and transparent. Those are the principles that we can all agree to. That said, political parties and elections also cost money to, to, I mean, to administer by political parties and by candidates. What we did in Bill 81 is to make a separation between the... the The individual donation limit for a general election and individual donation limit for a nomination contest. And it was still capped at $12,500 for nomination. And the current um, EFCDA, the current law, provide a process of what happens if you raise excess money than... $12,500. $12,500. It says, without any changes that we made, I did not touch Section 12 of the EFCDA. It says, if you are successful, you can use the excess money towards your general election, or it can be donated to the party, or it can be donated to your constituency association. Right. If you are unsuccessful, you can donate the money to the party or to your constituency association, or you can give back the money to the donors on the supervision of the chief electoral officer, in other words, election officer.
0: Right. Which is now reported... Yeah, I, I understand. I, I think we're on the same page. It's just the, the the question of whether or not that means more money being brought into the system or less money being brought into the system and closing one loophole and opening another. But I, I've kept you for more time than you you said you were available to say. I appreciate you joining us very much, Minister. Um, we'll chat again. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. you. Be, thank you. That is Casey Maju, who is the bill sponsor um, and uh, UCP um, MLA and minister. Uh, and there's 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 the government's take on this, okay? it's We didn't change any of the rules when it comes to buying bulk memberships. That's always been the way it is. Again, chief electoral officer disagrees. Um, according to the chief electoral officer, uh, he put out a bulletin that came out earlier in the month and said, no, the existing legislation meant that you could not buy memberships for other people. This bill says if you go and buy bills for other people... Um, it goes towards your contribution limit. So the immediate response is well you're you're you know you're just sort of saying go ahead and do it. Um so that is a change according to the chief electoral officer. It's not according to the minister. We're going to be talking about Canada's housing situation, and we've had a few discussions about that on the show. Uh, We've heard it called a crisis. We actually, our our last guest got a lot of you up in arms. He came on and said it's not an issue with supply, it's an issue with demand and the fact that people are trading up. And if we brought in a capital gains tax on resales of homes, uh, it would slow things down. A lot of you were angry with that. Um, But there's all kinds of different, you know, positions on where we are and how things uh, you know, if in, if you take a look at it, there's no question that the price of housing in Canada is up. In some parts of Canada, it is up very, very dramatically. In other parts, not so much, and maybe that's part of the discussion. So we're going to have a chat now with Mike Moffitt, who is um, former economic advisor, advisor to Liberal leader Justin Trudeau. He's an assistant professor at Western's uh, Ivy Business School, a senior director at the Smart Prosperity Institute, and he recently... Uh, collaborated with Ken Boss Cool on a piece uh, on this very topic. Mike, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. So, why, why don't we just start with you know your assessment of the state of things? Because as you as you know, we hear it called a housing crisis, and we say that people are being priced right out of the market, and home ownership is no longer attainable for the vast majority of Canadians. How would you characterize it? Is it crisis level in Canada right now?
2: Well. I, I think we have uh, some very different regional dynamics. So, uh, you know, in, in Edmonton and Calgary, I'd say, no, it, it's not a crisis. Uh, same with in Saskatchewan or Manitoba. You know, prices are up during the pandemic, about 10 to 20 percent. But, you know, nothing uh, nothing too outrageous. I would say in uh, southern Ontario, where I spend most of my time, then yes, it, it is a crisis. Right. And uh, it, it's a crisis that's been going back uh, some time, that uh, home prices going back to about 2015 are up uh, you know 10% or more year after year. And not just in Toronto, but a lot of uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, and even places like, like Tilsonburg, which we think of as you know, that, that Stomp and Tom song, very agricultural community now has uh, quite uh, high home prices. ones that uh, rival large cities
0: across Canada. Now, of course, when people start to wonder, okay, how do we do, you know, how do we address this situation? The, the thing people always talk about, of course, is it's so cheap, you know, interest rates are so low. Um, and that's part of the problem. If not the entire problem, do you agree that that's something we need to be focused on? Well,
2: I certainly think interest rates uh, and increased white collar uh, savings during the pandemic right, know, a lot yeah. of people did uh, well financially during the pandemic they weren 't going on vacations they weren't uh, you know going out to sporting events they saved a bunch of money and plowed that back into real estate so I do think that's an accelerant uh, but again only in markets that had sort of a shortage uh, to begin with so remember at the beginning of the pandemic where we had those sort of toilet paper shortages and then yep. you know people would go out and rush and hoard more well, that's essentially what's going on in the southwestern Ontario housing market, that we, we had this sort of pre-existing shortage um, that caused prices to go up. So, you know, speculators and investors saw an opportunity, so they bought up more homes, driving the price up further and so on. So you have this sort of endless cycle that uh, goes on, but it only begins with that sort of underlying shortage. And, you know, that's why we've seen lower mainland in B.C. and southern Ontario, these issues that you're not seeing in other parts of Canada.
0: Um. So in terms of addressing the problem, obviously, then you're saying supply is the problem. Do we, Is it just as simple as build these houses, just be flooding Ontario and uh, the lower mainland with, I guess, cheap, affordable housing? Is that the goal here?
2: I, I I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is you know, there are things that you. <laughs> it is do It's, it's going to take time. I mean, yeah. uh, in, in in Ontario again, this is uh, this is going back almost a decade or so. So you know, we didn't get into the situation overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. So absolutely, we do need to fix the underlying problems. You know, there are things that we can do to stamp down on, on speculators. So uh, British Columbia and Vancouver have had a vacant home tax. Um, there are things you can look at but I think overall we need to sort of take a light hand and uh the, the, the solution should be at a regional level. There's, there's no reason, you know, you know Regina and Tilsonburg are very different real estate yep. markets, so there's no one need to have a one-size-fits-all approach across Canada.
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, you can increase the supply in those areas, but what about decreasing the demand and actually incentivizing people to, you know, especially as we've learned over the course of the pandemic, Mike, you don't necessarily have to be in Toronto or Vancouver to work in Toronto and Vancouver. I mean, is there a, a way to sort of, Lessen the demand, spread it out a little more equally into other parts of the country that aren't seeing that kind of demand.
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. I think we should be encouraging people to to lo- move into less expensive markets. So you know, that's the things like uh, credential recognition. That uh, somebody wanted uh, to move from Ontario to Alberta to you know make sure that uh, their their job credentials uh, are sort of recognized in that. You know, we could have. Uh, things like t- tax credits, where you know, again, if, if people are wanting to, to to leave their their home in in Mississauga and and, and move to Edmonton, uh, a much less expensive market, you know, allow them to do that, and that sort of frees up the home in Mississauga. So I do think we need to be looking at this. That you're absolutely right that for a lot of positions, you can work from home now, so yeah. there's no there's no need to be right in downtown Toronto.
0: Um, Do we run a risk here? I mean, all governments are on board on this. Uh, There's not one government uh, or wannabe government in our country that hasn't talked about how they would address this. Uh, As we know, governments don't always get it right. Is there a risk they're just going to make things worse by, you know, throwing more money into the problem? That could be an issue, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one one area that they could get it wrong is on sort of foreign buyers, right? Uh, You know, there's this sort of talk about clamping down on that. And there are, you know, sort of foreign speculation that you wouldn't want to clamp down on, but there's a lot of uh, Canadian companies that want to bring in international talent to help their their, uh, companies grow. So you want to be a little bit careful about that where... Uh, you know, our companies aren't aren't able to to get the people that they need to to grow and expand and and create other jobs. So, you know, those are the kinds of policies where if you don't get the details right, you can yeah. absolutely do more harm than good.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, uh, interesting discussion. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. That's Mike Moffitt, who is a former economic advisor to Justin Trudeau, and he's a prof at the Western University's. Ivy Business School, a senior director at Smart Prosperity Institute. And as I said, if you want to read his column, it's pretty interesting. Um, he, he put it together with Ken Bossen-Cool, uh, who we've had on the show before. Of course, uh, Ken worked on past provincial and federal conservative platforms. He's a teacher at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill, and they collaborated on this, this piece here in terms of what to do with Canada's housing situation. Just some of your texts as we talked about this. And it, Westside, Matt, I mean, this is kind of the discussion that I think Mike was talking about. And if you read the piece, he mentions it a bit more. Uh, Westside, Matt says, instead of raising the Bank of Canada interest rate, why don't we regulate the interest rates of mortgages on their own? For example, in Southern Ontario, the minimum rate would be 5%, but in Thunder Bay, it can be 2.99%. That would cool the hot housing markets. Technically, I think that could be done. I I mean, the Bank of Canada rate is not... It's tied to mortgage rates, but of course they, they don't move in lockstep. Banks will change mortgage rates regardless of what the Bank of Canada, I mean, that's the overlying feature, I understand that, but um, I, I don't know how you spread out the demand. I think that's the issue. When everybody is talking about Toronto and Vancouver, Toronto, Vancouver, Toronto, Vancouver, and we know that's where the price of housing is just obscene, it's absolutely obscene. Uh, Last week, uh, it was announced that uh, uh, first the U.S. said they were going to have a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Olympic Games in Beijing. Then uh, Canada joined in, Australia, U.K., um, so it looks like uh, that's gaining some momentum. We'll see what the final count is by the time the Games finally roll around in February. But um, certainly some of the West uniting and saying, we will not be sending diplomats to the Beijing Games. Our athletes are going to go, but we're not going to send any dignitaries, VIPs, anything like that. Now, how effective will that be? Is there a better way to do this? We're going to chat now with Dr. Robert Huish, who is an associate professor in international development studies at Dalhousie University. Doctor, thank you for your time this morning. appreciate you joining us.
3: Good morning. Pleasure to talk to you.
0: Okay, so uh, it started with the U.S., and, of course, it spread slowly but surely, and uh, most of the allies on board now. Um, Is this an effective way of going about expressing your dissatisfaction or at least trying to make a difference, or is this just another half measure?
3: Yeah, it is absolutely not effective at all. Uh, and there's a, there's a bunch of reasons for this. Uh, it's something that I would have a lot of questions for whoever advised the Biden administration this is the way forward. And here's the first point. <clears throat> first off, we're talking about boycotts as a form of pressure against China to change policies. And we're talking big policies. We're talking human rights violations, uh, accusations of genocide in the western part of China, pressure on Hong Kong, pressure on Taiwan, pressure in the South Pacific Sea. So by retracting diplomats from mostly ceremonial events associated with the Olympics, I'm not sure how in any way that is going to create the sort of pressure against China, or against Beijing, to change its policies. And as you said, it's a half measure. Uh, the, the, that's the, sort of the first problem, is that in terms of boycotting, this is not really the best strategy to use the Olympics as the forum for it. But the bigger concern comes from this, is that when this symbolic uh, boycott was, was issued, China quickly said, oh, there will be retaliation in some way or another. And for anyone who's paid attention to politics in Beijing for the last five to ten years, yeah. when there's a promise of retaliation, there will be a deliverable of retaliation. The question is how, and where, and when.
0: And, that's the concern. I mean, I mean that's, yeah. that's the thing. How far could that go realistically? I mean, we, we, we know the two Michaels in our country, yeah. and, and people are saying, oh goodness, Connor McDavid's... I mean, are we going to see Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews plucked off the street? There's no chance of that happening, right? Well,
3: there there could be, and there's a couple factors to this, and it might not be just a, a you know a brazen abduction in that sort of sense, but just look at the, the the way that the the chips have fallen here, so where the Beijing Olympics are going to take place, they call it closed loop management, so that means nobody in or out of the Olympic Park uh, unless they're coming in from outside of the country, so even Chinese athletes have to quarantine there for fourteen days, so there's no free movement with with you know in or out of the place right so they've got to, Lockdown. Now, the second thing
0: is, is that there's a few facts. Oh, Sarah, we lost him. Sarah's on it. She's going to get him back. Don't worry. We'll get the guests back. I. This is the question that I have, is how much risk are we actually putting our athletes at when China says that they will respond with firm countermeasures? What does that mean? Um, I, I can't imagine that, you know, our athletes our Olympic athletes, are at risk. I mean, that just seems to me to be beyond beyond imagination. But let's see. We've got him back. Dr. Hi Robert Hughes. Hi, hi there, hi Doc. There. Thanks for calling yeah. back. Um, no,
3: no, no, no problem at all. Um, so I guess the big concern here is that if an athlete were to test positive for COVID, yeah. Uh, with, what would the rules then be? 14 day, uh, quarantine, that's definitely guaranteed. Could there be something else afterwards? We're not sure. And the big thing that always is a concern with the Olympics is doping. Doping and narcotics. Yes. Even in this, uh, this, the, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, there were four people who were detained in Japan for, for cocaine possession. And doping and narcotics in China is very, very serious business. So that's where most foreigners are detained in China for that. So could there be some sort of uh, a trip up with uh, a COVID uh, positive test? Could there be a doping allegation? Could that trigger detention? And it might. Uh, now, the biggest problem with this is we've also seen that China in the past, if they've got a problem with the United States, they don't necessarily attack the United States or put pressure on it directly. Right. Instead, they'll put pressure on the allies. And now that Australia... Canada, the UK have all fallen into step, these are the countries whose athletes and whose uh, diplomats who are maybe not in the Olympics or anyone else a part of the Olympic delegation themselves, that's who the target
0: would be on. And we've seen that before. I mean, like we mentioned the two Michaels before, that was an entire proxy battle, if you will, between China and the United States that Canada was stuck in the middle of. You could see that happen again, you're saying?
3: Exactly. It's, It's what we call a proxy punching bag. So we've seen similar pressure put on Australia. There was a lot of tariff that were going on between uh, China and Australia when, when Australia was purchasing these uh, these submarines, and, and there's other economic dealings with the U.S., and so China said, well, we're going to start boycotting your beef and, yeah. and your wine in that way. So this is something that is old hat for China, and it, usually it's targeting key industries. If it's going to be canola fields uh, or if it's going to be Atlantic lobster or Australian beef or New Zealand wine, but... They're also not impervious to putting pressure on athletes. And I'm just thinking to the track record that China has shown about singling out athletes in the U.S. who have already spoken out about their human rights issues, in particular the Houston Rockets and the Boston Celtics. Uh, Both teams were effectively boycotted.
0: So they've done things like this before. Um, So an all-out boycott is really the only way that, if you really want to send a message and you really want to do something and not put your own athletes at risk, it should be a full-on boycott then.
3: Exactly. I mean, the one, one thing to do would just be to uh, ignore the Olympics as the stadium to create this political turmoil, just to, just to have gone by it. Well, we're too late for that now. Mr. Biden has, has gone down this road. China has promised retaliation, and other countries have joined on board. So I think that the one thing in terms of making it more effective and to protect and ensure the safety of all of our athletes, if it's here, if it's in the U.S., U.K., or Australia— would be to to withdraw the, the, the teams right now. Because if there's a real serious concern about the way that China is governing its people, the way it's pressuring others in its region, uh, then it's got to be all or nothing. Uh, these sort of half measures, they don't work, they haven't worked, and they won't work again.
0: Um, what Tell me about this Olympic truce. I mean, again, I don't know how much stock you can put in, but what is it? I mean, your piece was the first time you even heard of it
3: actually goes back uh, quite a ways to the ancient Olympics, so the ones in, in Greece that were back in the days of the, of the Stoics. Now, uh, the, of course, the modern Olympics that uh, started up just around the turn of the 20th century, uh, that clause wasn't actually adopted until after World War II. And what the, the Olympic truce was meant to be uh, was a clause that participating nations would sign on to allow free passage of their athletes to the games and out, and also for the host nation to respect all rights of athletes who are participating there. And this was a completely a reaction to the, to the Iron Curtain, the mm-hmm. Berlin Wall, that, of course, the games would be uh, taking place on either side of that as they were. So it's usually just a ceremonial... Decree, but it does have some teeth. It, it shows that uh, politics are going to be put aside for two weeks. And again, those countries who have gone into this partial boycott of the Olympics have not signed the Olympic right. truth. Yeah. Uh, it's usually these little tiny uh, documents that are sort of arbitrary that suddenly become <laughs> really important once tensions start to boil
0: over. Um, in terms of anticipating a response from China, as you said, they've promised there will be one. Um, do we have, a, in terms of timeline, I mean, we know they are patient regime and they they'll do what serves them best on their own schedule so I mean will it be are you anticipating they might take some action during the games post games what do you th- what do you think might happen here?
3: My guess would be it will be either just before or just in the final days of the games, uh, and again we're we're sort of looking for that excuse for arbitrary detention. Right. Um, not too much of a crystal ball that we have here, but you think about the strategy of even putting people in arbitrary detention. It does two things. It sends a message to other countries to say don't mess with us. We're very much in control of our own area, and two, it sends a reinforcing message to people within China to say, we are, you know, an authority, we are uh, we're powerful, and we do not tolerate this sort of bothersome behavior from other nations. And that's the key to it. And I don't think Mr. Biden's advisors thought about what it looks like within China in terms of the symbolic importance of exercising strength right
0: now. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Great discussion. I appreciate you joining us.